Our scriptures this morning come from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you, still, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for uh, really the truth that Sean and Emily just sung, Father, because we come before you uh, with hearts that are restless. There are hearts that are restless with the circumstances of life, with the things that uh, seem to crowd into our mind and all the the noise of the things that are happening around us, Father. And uh, we come before you with hearts that are messy, with hearts that try to make life work on our own, independent of you. But Father, we're thankful that you are the source of rest. So we pray that as we come before you this morning and as we reflect on the gospel message once again, as we look at your word, uh, that we would be reminded of the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. The only true rest that this world really has to offer. So Father, help us to see Jesus this morning. Help us to see his greatness. Help us to see our profound need for him. And help us to cling to him and find the perfect rest that our souls need. In Christ's name, amen. One of my, uh, I have to tell you about one of my favorite uh, movies of all time, which has never really become a popular movie at all, uh, was a movie that was made about 10 years ago. It was a, a small budget movie called About a Boy, and it didn't receive a whole lot of attention. That They did, I think, make a television show out of it at some point. Uh, but I loved it. It was one of the, the favorite, my favorite movies, one of the ones I had to buy, and I'll watch it over and over again. Uh, and the main character in the movie uh, is just a really interesting character. It really just focuses on him and his life. But the main character in the movie made an attempt uh, to live life purely for himself. And he called it island living in the movie. And what the movie does is it talks about various interruptions that continue to happen in his life that that interrupt his island living. And in the process, what he discovers or what he finds is that actual true life is found in the interruptions. You don't have to look hard to realize that we live in an incredibly individualistic society. Jack Miller used to call it me-first-ism. And basically what it is, is that all of us, for some, for some reason, or maybe it's the cultural air that we live in, but for whatever reason, we seek to become our own personal islands. 
We want to be self-sufficient. We don't want to have to need anyone or depend on anyone at all for our lives. Along with this comes an incredible, tremendous temptation to only think in individualistic terms about life, to really think only about ourselves and our wants and our desires. There was a sociologist named uh, Robert Bella who in the 80s uh, wrote a weirdly prophetic book about this idea of individualism. He says that we live in a culture that stresses the individual. He wrote this almost uh, 35 years ago. He said, individualism lies at the very core of American culture. We believe in the dignity, indeed the sacredness of the individual. Anything that would violate our right to think for ourselves, judge for ourselves, make our own decisions, live our lives as we see fit is not only wrong, it is sacrilegious. What he highlighted is that our tendency is to think about ourselves and our own good above all other things. And sadly, the majority of, of faith circles, even within Christian circles or faith circles, have simply mirrored the culture in the same way. We tend to stress the individual or the individual's relationship with God at the expense of thinking about our corporate relationship before God as well. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you'll have noticed that we've been looking at the, the seven letters that are in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. And these seven letters were written to seven different urban churches in the ancient world. They were letters that were given to the apostle John when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And they are messages that Jesus gave to John, messages that Jesus wanted to be taken back to these churches and they highlight for us what it means to be a church, what it means to to relate to God as a community of believers. But as we've looked at them, we've noticed that it, they didn't just have meaning in the ancient world, but they have meaning for us as well. They they really kick against in many ways the cultural moment in which we live. Because these letters don't let us think in terms of just the individual. Sure, there's lots of, of personal or individual applications that all of these letters have for us, but they are community letters with community concerns that help us realize that we stand before God not just as individuals, but we stand before God as a community of faith. They teach us what it means to be a church, and they teach us that this thing called faith ought to be lived within the context of community. Over the weeks, we've seen that uh, one of the essential marks of the church, we saw this in the, the letter to the church at Ephesus, one of the central marks of the church has to be love. We saw that persecution is another mark of the church. We saw that in the letter to Smyrna. We saw in the letter to, to, uh, to, the letter to Pergamum that, that, that truth has to be the mark of a church. And we saw in the letter that we looked at last week that, that truth doesn't, isn't just a mark of the church, but the ability to speak truth into each other's lives is also the mark of the church. And as we come to this morning's letter, we see that authenticity has to be the mark of the church. 
Because the letter that we read this morning is an all-out assault on nominal Christianity. This week's letter is, is written to the church at Sardis. And, and this letter, and a, church that we're, a letter we're going to look at later, the letter to the church of Laodicea, uh, have real particular application to us in our cultural moment. Because both are written to churches that live in a, in a culture of relative wealth and luxury. They're written to churches that aren't facing any sort of persecution whatsoever. But they're churches that exist in a cultural moment very similar to ours. One of an unusual wealth and luxury and lack of persecution. But what's also interesting is that both the letter to Sardis and the letter to Laodicea, these churches that most resemble us in our cultural moment, are ironically the most severe letters of all the letters that are written in the book of Revelation. Sardis was a wealthy city. It was a luxurious city. It was powerful and well-known. It was a city that was built on a, on a huge hill that on three sides had a, a cliff. So it created kind of a citadel or fortress-like existence for this city. But it was also an industrial city that was known for trade. It was at the crossroads of, of five major trade routes uh, in the ancient world. So it was very wealthy and very well known. Like all the other cities, it, 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 it engaged in pagan worship. And the particular god that was popular in this city was the, the god of Cybele, who was believed to have the ability to raise people from the dead. And it is in this context that, that Jesus sends this most severe of all letters. Most of the letters have all sorts of encouragement sprinkled in them, but not this one. This letter is the most severe. It involves a very severe correction. It involves an urgent instruction. And finally, it involves a faithful promise. And the first thing we see as soon as we begin reading the letter is the severe correction that Jesus has for this church. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Just this past month, uh, the Sunday op-ed piece in the New York Times featured an article by uh, David Brooks, and the column was uh, called The Moral Bucket List. And he also did a TED Talk on this uh, very idea that he wrote about in this article. And what he says in the article is there are really two types of virtues that are out there. There are resume virtues and there are eulogy virtues. He said that resume virtues are the things that we want people to believe about us. They are our attempt to put our best foot forward about ourselves. They are our attempt to build our reputation for other people to see. But he said eulogy virtues are reality virtues. They are the things that people will say about us after we are gone. They are the things that people may even say about us now when we are not in the room. They are the virtues that reflect our true reality. But what he argues in the article is that we've created a culture that is obsessed with resume virtues, but are ignorant about how to build eulogy virtues. 
And he said, what happens is a humiliating gap between our actual selves and our desired selves. You see, the church at Sardis had done a wonderful job at building its resume virtues. The church had a wonderful reputation in its culture. Unlike most of the churches that we've seen, this church was actually respected in the city and the culture in which it was in. The city looked at this church and saw it as a benefit to its own society. They were not subject to any sorts of persecution at all. They were known to be a church that was alive, a church that was exuding energy and vibrancy. It was a church that everyone wanted to be a part of, but the reality was much different than what everyone believed because Jesus tells them that they are actually dead. Imagine being a part of this church and receiving this letter of Jesus and thinking that you're doing really well because everybody thinks so good about you. Everybody sings your praises and and your reputation is wonderful. And then you get a letter from Jesus himself that says, actually, you are dead. You see, this is the subtle danger of reputation. And that is that we can become lost in our own publicity. The reality is we all have reputations. We all are people pleasers to some extent. We all tend our reputations very carefully, just like we're carefully tending a garden. We promote the good things that we believe about ourselves, and we tend to obscure our frailties and our weaknesses and hide them so that other people don't see them. But the danger is the subtle temptation to become lost in the role that we create for ourselves. When I was in high school, I, uh, I landed, when I was a senior, I landed the lead role in my high school play. Now, don't be impressed by that because I went to a very small high school and if you could live and breathe, you'd make it into the play. But for whatever reason, when I was a senior, I made it uh, as the lead role in this, uh, the lead male role in this play that was all about this kind of love interest between this young man and this young woman. Well, I can remember we had a a really good uh, director of our play, and one of the things that she would do is she would constantly encourage us to, to get in character. So what she would do is she would make us sit in the auditorium for a half hour before play practice or before our actual performance, and she would tell us to get in character. And she said, you need to sit there and think about how your character would react. How would they respond to circumstances? How would they uh, react to certain situations? So that at the end of that half hour, you would be thinking just like your character would in the play. So we would do that every time before play practice, every time we had a performance, we'd spend a half hour just getting into character. Now, I can remember one particular night, uh, the, the girl that I played opposite of in this play uh, had her boyfriend in attendance that night. And I can remember we got into character just before the play, and we went through the play, and we did a great job because we were in character. And then I can remember at the very end, after the lights came up and she went out in the audience, I saw her hugging and kissing on her boyfriend. And in that moment, I hated that guy with an intense passion. 
And the reason I hated that guy with that intense passion is I was so in character that at that moment, I didn't have any feelings for this girl outside of the character, but I was so in character at that moment that I had become lost in the role that I was playing. You see, the danger for all of us is to become lost in a role. It's to become lost in our reputations. We become a character that we play on the stage of life. And the danger is, in the midst of being lost in this role, we become oblivious to the true reality and the true nature of our souls. That's true for us as individuals, but it can also be true for us as a church. We can become lost in our own particular sense of righteousness or goodness, that we lose track of the true reality of ourselves and our souls. Frankly, this is why Jesus has to send this church such an incredibly severe letter of disruption. He offers his instruction to a church that had become lost in its own press. So he not only offers them this, this, uh, this correction, but he also offers them an urgent instruction. He tells them what to do in spite of the fact that they've become lost. Verse 2, it says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, I firmly believe that we serve and worship a God of comfort and peace. Just like we sang, he, he offers rest for, for weary souls and he can become a refuge for us in beautiful times. But he also is a God who sometimes has to show up and whack us alongside the head because we need it. He sends holy disruptions to open our eyes to the true nature of ourselves. And often those disruptions come in incredibly painful ways. And that's what Jesus had to do for this church. So he offers them five imperatives. He offers them five things that they need to do now that they have received this disruptive letter from Jesus himself. The first thing he says to them is that they need to wake up. They need to realize that even though they think they are a church full of life, they are actually a spiritual graveyard. Their reputation doesn't match their reality. So Jesus says, open your eyes, wake up, open your eyes to the true reality of your souls. Open your eyes to the lack of life that exists in your church. Open your eyes to just how far you have strayed away. Open your eyes to the brokenness of your own soul. He then says to them, strengthen the little that remains. He says, there's a kernel of life that is left within you, so tend that kernel. Water that seed so you don't just have the reputation of life, but you have actual, real life to you. He says to them to remember, to remember the message, remember the gospel, remember the thing that you had received and heard. 
Remember that the gospel is about owning your weaknesses and your frailties. It's not about trusting in your reputation or trusting in your righteousness or your own perceived sense of your own goodness. It's not about trying to to build your spiritual resume to impress God and to impress others. It's about owning our weaknesses and our frailties. He says, keep it. He says, practice this gospel daily in your lives. He says, wake up each morning and remind yourselves, preach this gospel to yourselves every single day. Stop preaching the gospel of self-righteousness and spiritual resume building. Instead, beat the true gospel into your heads continually each day because it is the only message that truly brings life. Finally, he says, repent. He says, repent from the sins that you've been committing. Anytime you see repent in the scriptures, it means to turn around, to recognize that you've been going in the wrong direction and to turn around and go in the right direction. Many people have argued that this is what the Christian life is really all about. Continual repentance, continual turning, continual embracing God in faith. It is a lifelong process of attacking our weaknesses and sins, of recognizing them and turning from them. You see, the propensity of our own hearts, the temptation, the drift of all of our hearts is to trust in our own goodness. When others praise us for our goodness, the propensity becomes even stronger in our hearts. And the danger is that we can become lost in a role. We can believe our own press and we can live for building our own reputation. But in the process, we may be slowly dying spiritually. The life of our inner selves, the life of our very church could be slowly being sucked away. This is why we need a wake-up call. This church didn't have the wake-up call that often comes from uh, a culture that persecutes them, so they needed a different wake-up call. Their wealthy culture had led them into complacency and apathy And that apathy and complacency was slowly choking all the life out of this church. So God needed to send them a holy disruption. But even in the midst of the storm that God brings upon them, even in the midst of this godly disruption, God reminds them of the beautiful promises that come to them in the gospel. So we not only see a severe correction, We not only see uh, uh, instruction, but we also see the beautiful promises of God in the gospel. Verse 4 says this, You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. To the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before angels. If you've ever tried to read the book of Revelation, you've probably walked away scratching your head a little bit. And that's because the book of Revelation is full of symbolism. 
It's full of word pictures and illustrations and symbols that have layer upon layer upon layer of meaning for you and I and those that read them. And in these few verses, Jesus offers three beautiful symbols that talk about the promises that God gives to his people. The first it mentions is white garments that will be given to those who conquer. In the ancient world and even in the, in the pagan religious system, for someone to engage in worship, they had to have clean clothes. It was a very practical need that they had to have. They had to have white garments. Because if you walked into worship, even in the pagan system, if you walked into worship with dirty clothes, then you would not be allowed to worship that God. What Jesus is saying to this church in Sardis is that they have the reputation of having clean clothes. They have the reputation of having pure and virtuous souls. But the reality is they don't. The reality is that even their best deeds, even our best deeds, are like filthy rags before God. Therefore, what Jesus says is, I will clothe you. I will clothe you. And what the gospel promises and reminds us from time to time is that life comes when we own up to our mess and our sin. The gospel comes to us when we recognize and own up to our dirty clothes, when we recognize that we stand before God dirty and sinful. But life comes in those moments when we allow him to clothe us. When we allow him to clothe us with the righteousness and goodness that comes from Jesus Christ himself. And it is only when we stand in his goodness and his righteousness accomplished for us on our behalf. Can we be made right before a living God? The second image we see is that of a book of life. The passage says that your name will be made secure in the book of life. In ancient cities like Sardis, uh, the cities would have a registry. They would have a book in them that that would register all the names of the people who were true citizens in that city. And your name would only be removed from that book, from that ledger, if you either died or committed some sort of treason. Well, what Jesus is saying to them is that through faith in him, their names can be written in the book of life, in the citizen roles of heaven itself, the city of God. And when we are in a relationship with him, nothing, nothing at all, can ever threaten our names in that book. Nothing can come and blot our names out of that heavenly registry. The last, uh, the last illustration that the letter conveys to us is that it tells us that Jesus himself confesses our name before the Father. It offers us this beautiful picture of Jesus, God's son, standing before God the Father in heaven, continually confessing our names before God the Father. 
Jesus constantly stands before God in heaven, claiming his ownership and his love for us before God the Father. He delights to call us his very own. The truth is, all of these promises are ours. All of these promises can be ours if we are found in Jesus Christ. So the question that we have to ask ourselves as we read this letter to the church at Sardis, as we reflect about our own individual lives and our own identity as a church before God, is maybe the simplest of all questions. And that is, what matters most? What matters most to you? What matters most to us as a church? Are we living purely for the gaze of other people? Are we slaves to building our personal reputations or our church reputations in the eyes of others? Are we simply play acting to some sort of spiritual role that we hope to live up to? Or are we living for the gaze of God? Are we living under the gaze of God? Because the reality is God sees us for who we truly are. He sees us in the true nature of our souls, and yet he chooses to love us anyway. He calls us to own our own mistakes and our frailties, to repent and to turn from them. And he calls us to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promises that come with it. He calls you and I, he calls us as a church to wake up, to remember the promises of God, to repent and experience the life that we have in Jesus Christ.